0: If you have your Bibles, would you open up to the book of Isaiah? We're going to be in the 42nd chapter, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. I'll read it, and then I'll pray for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation's. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would unfold your word, that you would teach us, that you would give us much grace and patience and focus. And Lord, I pray that this word might sharpen us, that we would be further sanctified by your word. And I pray that we would be more glorifying to you as a result. And pray all of this in our Savior's name. Amen. I'll begin tonight with a very, very simple question, but I want to tell you to think of the first answer that pops into your mind. You don't need to say it out loud. But you do need to think of it. The first thing that comes to your mind when I ask this easy question. question is, who is Jesus Christ? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I love this question because there's all sorts of great answers that we can give. We could speak of Christ as the Son of God. The first thing that comes to our might, mind might be that Christ is the Messiah. He's... The Savior. Some of us might say, well, He's the King of glory. He's the Lord of all of the universe. Some of us might take a different route and say, and think first to ourselves, well, He's the sacrifice of God. He's the priest of God, the mediator of God. Others might take a little bit of a different route and think to themselves, well, Christ is the friend of sinners. He's the humble servant of God. You see, there's all sorts of answers we could. ...give. He's a lion. He's a lamb. And while all of these are right answers in and of themselves... ...the interesting thing is that one of those answers... ...to the exclusion of all of the other answers... ...you come up with a false Christ. You come up with a unbiblical Jesus. And this presents a temptation to the church at all times... A temptation to narrowly view Jesus Christ, to limit who he is, to focus only on very particular characteristics and roles and actions of Jesus Christ. And really, this is a temptation because we're tempted to pick the attributes that we think are most important, the works of Christ that we value most of all, the The attributes that we think are the greatest in Christ. And there's only one solution to this temptation. We have to go back to the scriptures. And then we have to go back again. And then we go back again. And we do this all throughout our life. Why? Because we're letting scripture inform our understanding of who Christ is. We're taking out our own thoughts and they're being replaced simply With what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ. The servant songs of Isaiah are one of the best places that we can go to in the scriptures to get this basic idea of who Christ is. They're a wonderful place to go to see Christ displayed in all of his brilliance, in all of his wonder... Now, you might be wondering to yourself, what are the servant songs? Well, there's four of them. We find them in the book of Isaiah, particularly in the second half. And these are famous prophecies of Christ in the book of Isaiah. And they're famous because they present Christ in such rich detail. They give us a big picture of who he is. I think of them a little bit like... Uh, Old Renaissance paintings. Have you ever seen old Renaissance paintings? They're big, big portraits, big paintings. And when you look at them, there's all sorts of different characters in them. And there's all sorts of different focal points. There's different places that your eyes can look to. And you can see different movements and different actions and different landscapes and different uh, people and animals and all sorts of things going on just in one painting. And it's brilliant, it's incredible, it's rich, it's dynamic. There's a sense in which these servant songs are a lot like that. They're snapshots that when we see them, we take in a full breadth of who Christ is. That's what makes them so wonderful. Well, the first servant song is what we're going to be studying tonight. The first servant song comes in Isaiah 42. 1 through 9. And what is the snapshot, if you you are, what is the snapshot that we're given of Christ in Isaiah 42? I could really summarize it like this. We see Christ as a meek king. On the one hand, he's this servant who is invested with all power. He's the special chosen agent of God. He's invested with the Holy Spirit. He's given all power to establish justice on the earth. And on the flip side, he's also a meek servant of God. And he's gentle. And he upholds the weak. And he's careful. He's a meek king. We can divide this text by the way that God speaks in this text. First, we see God speaking about his servant in verses 1 through 4. And then we see God speaking to his servant in verses 5 through 9. We'll start with the first thing, God speaking about his servant. And it begins with a description of the uniqueness of the servant. He presents his servant as one who is entirely and completely Unique And actually, the first way we see the uniqueness of the servant is in the context of this chapter. Let me briefly take us uh, just a few chapters back. When we're talking about the book of Isaiah as a whole, there's a dividing line right in the middle. Right at chapter 40. And from chapter 40 on to the end of the book, chapter 66, there is a great level of detail where God is outlining... The master plan of salvation. All of the servant songs, for example, are listed in this second half. And so the very first words of chapter 40 are this, and you can see the, the emphasis. This is 41 through 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then we could go just a little bit further into Isaiah 41. And Isaiah 41 asks the question, who is it going to be that accomplishes this great salvation? Who could possibly bring all of these wonderful promises to fruition? And right at the end of chapter 41, God asks sort of rhetorically if, ...perhaps the idols of the world, if all of the other so-called powers of this universe... ...could ever accomplish the great and glorious plans that he has for salvation. Look with me at verse 27 through 29 in chapter 41. This is right before chapter 42 begins. God says, "...I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news." But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And so I want you to see that right at the end of chapter 41 and the beginning of chapter 42, there is a a great contrast... ...being made. God ends chapter 41 by saying... ...behold the idols of the world. And they're nothing. They're wind. They're delusions. They're empty. They are powerless. They will do nothing for you whatsoever. But then notice how chapter 42 begins. Behold my servant. Behold my servant... See him, it starts off by pointing us right away to the glory of the servant. He's saying, gaze upon him. If you want to know where all of my promises will be kept, they will be kept in this servant. If you want to know where my salvation will be fulfilled, they will all be fulfilled in him. God is saying right from the very start, look at my servant, behold him, see him in all of ...his glory. Perhaps you've spoken to a parent before... ...of a child who is exceptionally... ...we'll call it... uh, ...excellent. They achieve in everything that they do. They make the best grades possible. They get into the best schools. They're uh, set up in every way to be successful. And if you ever ask a parent like that... ...about about that child... ...just be prepared. Because they're going to go on... And on and on and talk about how wonderful and, and, and successful their child is. And of course, that's natural. They're proud. They love their child. They want others to behold what they're doing. It's something very similar here. God is saying, look at my servant. Well, we see another way that Christ is unique. We see the description about him that God gives. Look at the rest of verse 1. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon upon him. And the basic idea here is that between God and between the servant, there is a special relationship. It is the servant who is upheld. And that word means to grip onto him. God is saying, This is my servant, and I'm not letting him go. He is my servant. I'm I'm upholding him. I'm keeping him close to me. He goes on to say he is chosen by God, specially selected by God. He is delighted in by God. He's loved and adored by the Father. And then lastly, he tells us that he is filled with the Spirit of God. He's been empowered. He's been anointed or set apart. He's been given everything he needs to accomplish the task that God has given him. You could put it this way. The father withholds nothing from the son. It is his perfect delight to give everything to his beloved son. Jesus says this himself in John 16, 15. He says, all that the father has is mine. It's a unique description. And then third, we see he has a unique task as well. Look at the end of verse 1. We're told that he will bring forth justice to the nations. What will this servant do? What's his task? Well, here it's described as bringing justice to the nations. And we should ask, what is meant by justice? Well, the plain meaning is It's judgments according to the law. This servant will pronounce judgment. And he will pronounce judgment based upon the perfect law of God. We might think of it this way. The servant will be the one to establish the moral law of God. Evil will be stopped. The law will be set up. The law will be imposed. He will stop evil. He will establish justice in that sense. But there's a secondary emphasis here as well. Christ, in establishing justice, will bring structure. That's another meaning of this word. It has the idea of bringing order out of chaos. In other words, this servant, Jesus Christ, will bring order to all of human life. All of society will be be directed perfectly... To the glory of God and to the help and good for man. Everything will be done perfectly and in order in the society of Christ. That's what he's saying here. This week was somewhat stressful for me. Uh, Some of you know that I bought a house. Uh, It's the first house I've ever bought. And of course you learn all sorts of new things when you do that. And one of the things that I had to learn and suffer through a little bit is that when you go to close for a house, they bring out a large stack of documents, and you just sign and sign and sign and sign and sign. And and the lady at the title company who was handing me the sheets of paper and explaining all of them uh, joked at the beginning, and she said, every piece of paper I'm handing you is a result of a lawsuit. Someone somewhere sued someone else, tried to find the loophole tried to get what they want against the law, and the government had to step in and try to fix the problem. And now, as a result, you and I have to sign hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents. That was the simple explanation that I got. And I was thinking about that this week, and it occurred to me that that human governments and the laws that they pass, it's strange, they don't seem to be ...the result of a well-thought-out, perfectly-ordered system... ...that works for everyone's good all the time. There's all sorts of problems. There's all sorts of chaos. There's all sorts of frustration and disunity. But this isn't true with the kind of government that Christ will set up. Christ will set up a government of perfect peace. In fact, this week made me look forward to heaven. There will be perfect order. There will be perfect consistency... There will be perfect peace. In heaven, there will be no fear of theft. There will be no fear of being taken advantage of. There will be no fear of chaos or dysfunction or disorderliness. Everything will be put in its proper place. That's a wonderful thing. Christ will establish justice. Always unique beyond this. We see the character of this servant. God uh, boasts in the character of his servant. Look at verse 2. It says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice... ...or make it heard in the street. And this verse is really a description... ...of the earthly ministry of Christ. And it's telling us something very important... ...about that earthly ministry. It's telling us that he is so unlike... ...the kings of this world. He's not pompous or loud, or boastful, or domineering. He didn't shout over others in order to get his way, even though he was powerful, even though he was the king. No, this verse describes the meekness of Christ. In his earthly ministry, Christ did not walk around with a royal court. He didn't walk around with fine clothing. He didn't even show off his power. In fact, there are so many instances in the Gospels where... He conceals his power, where he specifically tells people, don't speak of what I've done. My time is not yet. No, we see in Christ, in his earthly ministry, a man of modesty. He was peaceful. He was humble. and He was lowly. He was meek. And then it goes on. Look at verse 3, perhaps one of the sweetest verses in all of the Bible. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And that describes how this meek king deals with his people, those who come by faith. He's not a brutal king. He's not a domineering king. He's not a tyrannical king. Rather, what is presented here? He is a true friend for his people. He shows gentleness. He shows special care. He shows patience and tender love for those who That are called by his name. And this is so important for us to understand about our Savior. We don't need to be afraid of Jesus. There is a sense in which we should fear him. And that is a reverential fear. That is a love and a desire to honor. But I mean this in another way when I say that we don't need to tremble. We don't need to be afraid. uh, Unwilling to go to our Savior. Backing away from our Savior. No, this says quite the opposite. We should go to Christ. We should trust in him. He will not harm you. Even when he is testing you, you can trust that Christ will not push you too far. Even when Christ is stretching you, you can trust that Christ is not going to break you. Don't be fearful of him in that way. Instead, lean upon your Savior Go to your Savior. Even go to Him as you are. Are you a person of little faith? Ashamed that of all of the years of life you've lived, your faith seems so weak? Don't shy away from Christ. Go to Him. He will nurture your faith. Is your holiness meager? Lame? If you're honest with yourself, a little bit pathetic even? Don't shy away from Christ. Go to him. Christ will cleanse you. Christ will sanctify you. Are you doubting? The worst thing you can do is back away from your Savior. No, go to Christ. He will uphold you. He will assure you himself. Are you caught in sin? How many times when we're caught in sin is it our first response to move as far away from Christ as we possibly can? Isaiah 42 is telling you to do the opposite. Go to Christ. Be restored by Christ. He will be gentle with you because he's meek and lowly. You can trust him. Go on to verses 3 through 4. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Something different is being emphasized here. Here, it's the faithfulness of Christ, that he's strong, that he endures, that nothing will stop him from completing his task. Notice that he's faithful. He will do the task that God has given to him. He will obey until the very end. And I do want you to see that there's a little bit of play on words going on in this verse that it's it's easy to miss. When you see that it says that the servant will not be discouraged... That's the same word for bruised. So to the bruised reed he will not break, he himself will not be bruised. And likewise, when it says that he will not grow faint, it's the exact same word used just a verse earlier when it says that a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, Christ can care for a diminishing fire, a diminishing smolder, but... He himself will never be quenched. He himself will never be put out. Christ can care for weak people, but he himself is not weak. Maybe I could put it in another way. Christ is not a pushover. He's not a pushover. He's not someone that can be manipulated, taken advantage of. I don't know if you've ever come across someone perhaps with this personality. Uh, The person with no backbone, you might call them flimsy, uh, easily taken advantage of, easily pushed, easily um, manipulated in such a way that you can always get what you want from that person and you know it. And they're very easy to take advantage of. This is telling us that Christ is not like that. He can care for the weak, but he himself is not weak. No, it says Christ will get the job done. He will establish justice and uh, look just at the end of that verse it says that even the coastlands wait for his law that's a uh, particular way of saying even the people in the farthest reaches of the world the people you don't know the people you don't even know that you don't know they will be touched by the work of Christ nothing will stop him nothing will move him off course the whole world will know the purpose of the servant. Do you see how dynamic this Christ is? That he has all power, and yet he's also humble. That he's strong, yet at the same time he's gentle with his people. That he's devoted to his mission, yet at the same time he still cares for his people. This is the Christ that you serve. He's the Christ who is both strong and gentle as well. Well, that's the first point, and I have a shorter second point. It's God speaking to the servant. That was God speaking about the servant. Now it's God speaking to the servant. And in this second section, verses 5 through 9, God is confirming the servant. Confirming him in his mission and in, in his identity and work. And he does so in three different statements. And you'll notice that each of these statements begins by God declaring his name as if stamping his approval on each one of these three statements. The first statement comes in verse 5. It says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And the focus of this first statement of God is on God's creation. Not just his creation, but also his providence. That he doesn't just make all things, he sustains all things. And what is the implication here? God has created all life. He's the God of all life. Therefore, his plan of salvation concerns all life. His plan of salvation is much broader than Israel itself. His servant will be sent out to the the farthest reaches of the world itself. But then notice the second statement God makes in verses 6 through 7. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. If the first statement focused on God as creator... And sustainer, here the focus is on the goodness of God's plan of salvation. He first says that he has called you, talking to the servant. He has called the servant in righteousness. That is, he's called the servant for a holy work, for a righteous work, for a good and sweet and necessary work. And then he goes on to say that this servant will be given as a covenant. And we might wonder, what does it mean? How can someone be a covenant? And I think the idea is this. Your salvation is bound up in a person. That Jesus himself is our salvation. That's why the doctrine of union with Christ is so important. Because we are united to our mediator. That's what is going on here. God is mediating a covenant... Through this servant, every person who will be saved will come to God on the basis and through the servant of God. Jesus himself affirms this in Luke 22. There when he institutes the Lord's Supper. I'll just read you these words which are so familiar. But we see how valuable they are in light of Isaiah 42. It says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body. Which is given for you. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is given as a covenant. We are saved by this covenant. And notice that this is also a covenant full of grace. That's why we call it the covenant of grace. Notice all of the blessings that pour out of this covenant. We see that Christ will be a light for the nations. We're next told that Christ will open the eyes of the blind. Then we're told that Christ will free prisoners, bringing them out of their cells, bringing them out of their darkness. In every way, what is being highlighted? This covenant that I'm making with my servant is full of grace. It is one of salvation. If you are in this covenant... Then you are utterly dependent upon the grace of God. You now relate to God on the basis of grace found in Christ. Then there's a third and final statement God makes. In verses 8 through 9. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The first statement focuses on God as creator, sustainer. The second focuses on the salvation of God. And this third statement focuses on the glory of God. What's the main idea here? This servant will bring glory to God. And God will not share that glory. He will not share that glory with the idols of this world. He will receive the full glory that is due his name. By the work of this savior. By the work of this servant. And we need to see that this is really the goal of salvation in the first place. The goal, the end, is the glory of God. Do you often wonder... ...why you were saved. It's wonderful to be saved. It's marvelous to know the grace of God. Why? It's so that you would marvel at God's grace. That you would look to Him... ...and be stunned... ...that a God as holy and righteous as He would... ...before the foundation of the world... ...set His love upon you... ...and then send His Son to die on a cross... ...to redeem you from your sin... Brothers and sisters, we need to be stunned at the grace of God. And we need to give glory to God as a result. The purpose of our salvation is that we would be a people overflowing with praise. Overflowing with joy and thankfulness in Christ. And to give all of that glory to God. I love Philippians 2. It affirms this very truth for us. It says, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It all ends with God. It all comes to the glory that God is due. That is why we are saved. That is why the servant is here. That is why God is working to bring Himself glory. And so when you bow the knee to Christ, what are you doing? You're glorifying your maker and your sustainer. This is the servant of the servant song. What do we see about him? He's God's chosen instrument. He's full of the spirit. He's immovable and powerful. He's faithful until the very end. And wonderfully, he's also gentle and meek. And patient and so kind with us. And what will he end up doing? He will bring God all the glory. Do you want to see God glorified? Then put your faith into Christ. Bow the knee to the servant. Honor him. That's how you will glorify God. Do you want to see God praised? Then follow after his incredible servant. Behold the servant of God. Let's pray.